Welcome to the Robert Hunt Financial Market Update. It's your host, Robert Hunt, where we look at the week's news that can be a bit confusing, misleading, and take you off course, and we help to make it actionable, understandable, and clear. Another great one for you here on the Robert Hunt Financial Market Update. We are going to be looking at a few articles, and then we're going to do a little bit of Robert's Corner, where we deep dive into my own brain, what I'm meditating on these days as it relates to investment. The articles we will look at, there's a Wall Street Journal article headlined when Silicon Valley Bank and First Republic collapse, so did their employees' investments. So we're going to take a peek into what happens when employees buy a lot of their employer stock and the stock goes to zero. We're then going to pick on one of our favorite folks to pick on. We'll, we'll seek to do so with an attitude of grace and humility. But Mr. Jim Cramer says some outlandish things that I will refute with the truths of investment. And then, <clears throat> as time allows, we're going to look at some data I found interesting. Uh, there was a gentleman, Nick Megulia, who was seeking to highlight his distrust of the current bull market, and I'm going to tell you why it doesn't matter. Uh, and we might talk a little international stocks, one of my favorite topics. But at the top here, Wall Street Journal, when SVB and First Republic collapsed, so did their employees' investments. Workers at the failed California banks plowed their money into company stock. This can happen, and it's just so disappointing. Um, article shares with us. Shares of both banks, which once traded for hundreds of dollars each, are worth, are worth pennies in over-the-counter trading. Employees are facing the whirlwind loss of money they plan to use for retirement, kids' college educations, and other big-ticket expenses. According to interviews with more than a dozen current and former workers, some have also lost their job. So it, it highlights a couple of these stories. One, one gentleman, Tony Woodall, he was a community manager in First, First Republic Marketing Department. He bought $7,500 worth of First Republic stock since last year, and a third of it in the days before Silicon Valley Bank uh, failed when he thought First Republic looked cheap, and that money's gone. He is quoted, it's tough to swallow that loss. Other First Republic employees said they plowed more money in the bank stock or, here we go, or refrained from selling because they felt reassured by executives' optimistic statements. <sighs> Both public and internal, some use their bonuses to buy shares. Owning shares was lucrative in the years following the financial crisis when the banks grew rapidly. Silicon Valley Bank increased more than 14-fold in the decade through the end of 2021. And the S&P 500 only had a fourfold increase. Here is the program. And this is not just at these banks. I've seen this other places. But at Silicon Valley Bank, employees at all levels could buy company shares at a 15% discount. One 5% discount. According to the benefits brochure, staffers could also hold shares in their 401k. Silicon Valley Bank stock made up 18% of retirement plan assets. And we were, the quote here, we were almost all stockholders and proudly so said Rob McMillan, an executive vice president in Silicon Valley Bank's wine division. Now, when I saw they had a wine division, <clears throat> didn't love it, but must have been a cool job. Take a little sampling of that wine, for those of you who enjoy wine. Uh, and so you have these programs in place where at these both these banks, you could buy at a discount. So it feels like free money in a sense. But check this out. This is, where, this is where the lessons can be learned. On March 10th, the day Silicon Valley Bank failed, First Republic's human resources head, Molly Richardson, said at a meeting of HR employees, 
that it was a good time to buy the stock. According to People, First Republic's capital and liquidity positions are very strong. CEO Mike Roffler and Executive Chairman Jim Herbert said in a public statement on March 12th, the day another lender, Signature Bank, failed. So these First Republic executives are communicating to their employees saying, everything's fine, everything's fine. And they even are, go so far as to say they're very strong. The, the CEOs quoted the First Republic's capital and liquidity positions are very strong. Now, is that... He could have just said strong, and we said very strong. Eh. The chairman said it as well. Hmm. Okay. First Republic emailed workers to say that as of March 17th, employees' demand for company stock had exceeded the maximum number of shares available for purchase. <sighs> so, I have learned this the hard way a lot of times, is that CEOs, their first job is to be an advocate and salesperson for their company. So what that means is when they make these comments, um, then excuse the behavior here, they shouldn't be saying things that aren't true, but you always have to look at their comments with a scrutinizing eye and recognize that they are professional cheerleaders. I use that in the highest terms. I use it with reference for the cheerleading profession. But they're professional cheerleaders. They're seeking to communicate the merit of the stock in which they had. And so for these employees, you can appreciate some of the, the hot box they were in. They're getting the stock at 15% discount. They're being told by their employer, hey, this is cheap. We are great. All is well. And then zero. Absolutely zero. So the lesson here, I as I see it, is one, it is optional to participate in these 15% discount programs. They exist in a lot of companies. And my experience also psychologically is just about everyone feels their employer is, is doing great. Just about. I mean, there are a couple exceptions. But for the most part, we eat our own cooking. We, we, we kind of get hyped up on our own stuff. And so most of the time when I work with folks and they're doing these programs, they are feeling like their employer stock is undervalued. Now, I think there's psychology behind that. I don't think there's any sort of intrinsic value calculations occurring. I think you're listening to your CEO, understandably. You're also typically long the company. You work there. Maybe your conversation is tied to the performance metrics of the company. And you might already own shares. So you're always going to be talking a good game to yourself. And that's why it's very dangerous. So I recommend you have a second set of eyes. Look at your risk profile. I think it's permissible to participate in these programs, but only as much as you are comfortable losing because you can lose all of it. So in some of these instances, people had critical retirement needs, medical needs, college expense needs, and they were wiped out. And you don't have to do that. You just don't have to take that risk. It is an optional ride for you to get on. And I tell you, don't put more than you can lose. Up next, Mr. Jim Cramer, Mr. Mad Money. Typically, I will avoid these articles because of how outlandish they are, but this one... You know, I took the bait. Okay, if if the goal of CNBC was to get on the Robert Hunt Financial Market update, they have succeeded. They have they have entrapped me. It was so outlandish with what the truths of investment were that I couldn't, I just couldn't not take the bait. So, headline reads: <clears throat> Kramer says to trim your portfolio and don't be greedy. Quote: It's okay to take something off the table after a big run. CNBC's Jim Cramer warned investors on Wednesday 
that while bulls and bears make money, hogs get slaughtered. Kramer said it's time to trim some hot stocks and keep money waiting in the wings while the Federal Reserve weighs its, weighs its next move. I couldn't write a worse paragraph if I tried. If I plugged into ChatGPT, write the very worst paragraph that seeks to confuse investors and mislead them, I, I don't think they could do any better than this. How many lies are implicit in that statement? Well, the idea of trimming hot stocks purports that you know, the investor, which stocks will do well in the future and which won't, and we don't know that. Keeping money in the wings purports to know market timing. You can bring money on and off the table at your leisure to optimize your return. The data says, while the Federal Reserve weighs its next move, the great Warren Buffett says that if he had Federal Reserve chiefs whispering to either ear, it wouldn't change a thing he did. Why? Because he's an investor, not a speculator. What Jim Cramer is advocating for is speculation that is disastrous for the individual investor. And what is so insidious about these articles is they're on CNBC.com with great uh, graphics and they look clean and top of the page and click here and uh, another just mind-numbing quote in the article. Kramer says, I think we're currently in no man's land, though. Not high enough to justify making more sales, but certainly not low enough to justify buying anything, because I want to wait for a better opportunity, Kramer said, and then he needs a solid catalyst to buy new stock. What in the world? Uh, nothing he is saying is foundational. It, it's not, it doesn't have a foundation in the data, this evidence-based investing, this journey you and I are on where we're saying to ourselves, okay, I'm happy to invest if the evidence points me in that direction. What does the evidence say, class? The SPIVA report says 95% of active funds will fail to beat the index, and the market timing data says that it does not work. It's actually much more advantageous for investors to hold throughout the entirety and the risk is that if you miss just a couple, a couple of the good days out of the year, you could miss a third to half your return. So it's incredibly risky what he's proposing. The idea that we're going to simply just wait, go in and out. It's just madness. According to Kramer, instead of swinging at every pitch, it's time for investors to keep their bats on their shoulders. I just told you what we're doing for the trust waiting, Kramer said. It's often the hardest thing to do, but many times the hardest thing to do is also the best way to try to make a lot of money. Ah, incorrect. Incorrect. He's, he's misusing what waiting should be. Waiting should be when you purchase securities and wait, not waiting with cash on the sidelines. He has assured mediocrity in his investment returns. He's assured of it. This is not a winning strategy. And so, well, it can be... It may seem easy just to brush off stuff like this. We're, we're pounded. Our brains are pounded with information like this enough that if you're not careful, and I see this quite a bit, we may chuckle off and say, oh, no, that's just crazy Jim Cramer. But let's, let's be honest about our own shortcomings. We can fall prey to some of this madness as well. If we listen enough to this, we can, t we can also begin to care about market you don't care about market time until it's time to buy and you say well maybe it's not a good time don't do it do not do it and a great data point on Twitter Nick Maggioli dollars and data <clears throat> he's seeking to create I think some suspicion on this current bull market we're in 
he outlines the number of stocks accounting for the S&P 500's gains by year. And he says in 2017, 203 stocks contributed to the gain. That's 40% of the index. In 2019, 328 stocks contributed to the gain. That's 65% of the index. In 2020, <clears throat> 60 stocks contributed to the gain. 12% of the index. 2021, 258 stocks contributed to the gain. That's 52%. And then 2023, here's his big data point, big reveal. Only seven stocks are contributing to the current gain, and that's 1% of the index. His, his comment is, this isn't a normal bull market. Now, what are we to think of this data? To me, the first thing I thought about was, oh, aren't I glad to be an indexer? Can you imagine picking individual stocks, and if you miss seven of the stocks, you're down tremendously? But if you, I mean, can you imagine? But if you're an index fund investor, you can assure yourself of having those. To me, while this data may seek to create suspicion in the mind of investors that, oh no, this is troubled waters, go to cash, do what Jim Cramer said, we're going to wait, sit on the sidelines. No, no, no. This to me is a warm blanket, a further encouragement that you are on the right track, index fund investor. You need to own the whole haystack, not look for the needle in the haystack. Can you imagine needing only seven stocks? Otherwise, you're going to trail the index considerably. That's a tough job out of 500. Probably not going to do it. Probably not going to do it. So take heart, index fund investor. You're doing the right thing. And then in Robert's corner, I wanted to talk about the trials and tribulations that beset the international stock investor. If you've listened to previous episodes, you know I've been highlighting the importance of diversification and that if you own no international stocks, while it's permissible, Buffett and Bogle say it's okay. It's not advisable because I don't think you'll be able to stick with it. I don't think I will either when international stocks outperform, which they have, they take 15-year periods to outperform. I read a little data point that in the 80s, small cap international, some bizarre asset class, and there was over a six-year period, it went up four times. I mean, some just insane number. I thought, well, that, that would be very disheartening if you were strictly a U.S. investor. But it's hard to be an international investor. And let me tell you why dividends. So I just we just got the dividend data for VTI, Vanguard's total index ETF, and it's up 10% year over year. Meaning, if you look at the June of 2022 distribution and the June of 2023, it's a 10% increase. And this happens with regularity in the United States index fund dividend game. And that's as an investor, that's really the way we should be thinking about investing. We've got this farm, it's producing a crop. What is the crop? Fantastic. We really shouldn't be in the speculating game where we're so you can go in and out of stocks, as Mr. Kramer wants you to do. But sadly, this beautiful dynamic has not occurred in international stocks. And as I follow this, we'll look at one exchange trade fund, VEU, which is basically all the world except for the USA. So it's the complete international index that Vanguard um, uses. If you go back, it, it declared its dividend. It hadn't paid it yet. It's 60 cents. If I go back, and I was looking at this, I thought, well, how much has it increased over? The, well, in 2018, it paid 61 cents in June. Oh, that's that's no fun. I kept going back. It, it it's almost in June of 2014, it paid 61 cents. So you're flat on June. It's dividend for these international stocks. You're flat from 2014 to present. That's a long time. That's a real long time, and that. That's not fun. I looked at, well, why is this? Are these international stocks just falling into the ocean? What's happening? 
some of its currency risk. So there's a big increase in dividends from international in 2008 because of the euro and the yen. They appreciated considerably against the US dollar, and so it created this dynamic of big old dividends being paid out by these international stocks. Wowie. Well, when I, I went back this week, because <clears throat> for you, the listener, there's no bar too high I won't jump over. And I said, well, what, what has been going on with currency? Because, you know, that, maybe that's what's at stake here. And certainly that was the case. I went back and I looked at, well, the euro from 2008 to present is down 30% against the U.S. dollar. Well, yeah, that's going to affect your, your dividend internationally. And I thought, well, that's the euro. What about, what about the yen? Could the yen have maybe a silver line? I go back, well, no, not at all. The yen, that same time period, 2008, not as bad, but it's, it's down 4%. That's bad, but it's not great. And then because I care about you, the listener, actually went back to the Great British Pound and I said, all right, how's it doing? And it actually had remained about flat. Oh, I'm sorry, that was that was the, uh, it didn't remain flat. Goodness me, that was the Euro data. <clears throat> um. But it, it also did not appreciate, you know, the, the, the dollar still wasn't, was, was strong. So as an international investor, what's happening is, is while these companies may be increasing dividends, uh, the currency headwinds are keeping them flat. Now that may change on a dime as it did, you know, from, I think it was 2003, to 2008, those foreign currencies went up close to 50% against the dollar. So you had this kind of a boondoggle of a time if you spent dollars, which you do, if you're a United States citizen, you're spending dollars. So this is just, this is a lamentation. This is for all the international investors out there. Just know I, I'm with you here. This does not feel good. This makes you feel kind of like a crazy person for investing, seeing that U.S. markets are showing off these 10% year-over-year dividend increases while the international is flat since 14. But stay the course. Keep the allocation. We are in a moment in time, but this does not portend all of time. And so I do recommend keep that international allocation. Don't bail. The next 15 years could, who knows what, but I think you're going to be more likely to stick with an investment program if you own it all instead of trying to go in and out of U.S. international. So as always, Keep it calm, slow, keep it investing, simple, keep your time horizon. Long.